Press the button. Now we have the button. I didn't press it, neither did Ben. Ben probably didn't press it because I didn't press it. It's my fault. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know how this happens. Is it me that does it while I'm preaching? I was looking up here this morning. I was like, this is going to bother me because I could see it leaning. I'm going to ignore it today. I'm going to do my best anyway. All right, a couple of things. I hope you guys had a great week. Um, I need a favor from you all. Uh, I have a sick one at home. I think it's just a stomach bug. Nobody panic. Um, but I got about two and a half hours of sleep last night, okay? So I need your help this morning. I, I'm hoping that I, I'm, I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to, to do what he does through, through this weak, tired, old man body, okay? For those of you that are older than me, don't laugh at me. I feel it today, okay? So we're going we're gonna to jump in there this morning, but, but like always, I, I just got to point some stuff out. Um, Leah, thank you so much for your testimony this morning. Um, God has just ushered us right into this message, as he always does. Um, I, I feel like, um, Anna, put the slide up. Um, it's the, the verse in Come Thou Fount, where um, it says, let thy goodness bind, bind me like a fetter. I know I'm quoting that incorrectly. This is one of my favorite songs, by the way. Love it, love it, love it. Third line, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. What Leah described this morning is something that all of us experience. I was having the same issues this morning. I'm, I'm thinking about a story that I'm going to share in a minute, and it's a story that's particularly difficult for me, but I, I need to share it because it's going to help inform why I feel the way I feel about eldership, okay? But as I'm, and I do this every week, I'm kind of going through the message as we're going through worship because I'm asking the Holy Spirit to highlight maybe things that I'm not bringing enough emphasis to. And as I'm thinking about that story, my mind is moving to the side of the story that I'm not going to talk about today, but, but that brings so much anger to me as, as, a, as a man, as a husband, as a father. And in that moment, Leah had just shared about her struggle this week of being focused in on what the Lord was doing, of, of being ushered into those moments with Him. And I read that line and I, don't, I know I've probably mentioned this here before. If you, if you don't know what a fetter is, a fetter is a device that is used to tie the, the legs of animals together so that they cannot wander away. Right? And we need that. We need sometimes to be bound where we are, that the Lord would, would bind us so that we must stay in His presence. But, but when I think of a fetter, because I've used them before on animals, because that's the kind of guy I am, it, it looks painful and it seems mean. But what is the fetter that we're asking for? It's God's goodness. Let His goodness be a fetter. Let that, that joy that we, are, that we are crying out for today, let that be the thing that attaches us to the Father. That keeps us from wandering away. As we begin this morning, we're going to continue on in this, our, our study of, of what it means to be an elder. Today, this is, I'm super creative, this is part two. <laughs> Michelle showed me before the service, she's like, well, is this the title of her message today? It's somebody else that she knows that's preaching on eldership, and it says what an elder smells like. And that's a much better title. I don't know where he's going with that, but I'm going to have to listen later, just because. Because, yeah, he's more creative than I am, that's okay. Listen. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about a lot of things today, and the reason I spent this time this morning is I, I want you guys to be acutely aware of what God's doing in our body, right? That's the reason for this. The fact that God is personal and He speaks into our lives, 
The fact that, that I spent a week alone with the Lord preparing for today, and Leah spends her week alone preparing for the Lord today. Both of us wallowing in our sin right where we are, and yet the Lord uses us and He brings us to the same place. And I have to point that out. That's, if I did nothing else of value, it would be that, right? So today we're going to continue on in our pursuit of what it means to be an elder. Last week I mentioned um, the, the fact that we have this why. Why are we doing elders? What is the qualification of an elder? And then lastly, how do we go about um, getting elders? This morning I want us to begin with a story about my journey. Because for me, eldership is significant. Not because I am one, but because I've seen the value of what it did in my life. Some of you, if you've heard this story, some of you have not. Um, this is uh, around 2010 or so. Um, I had just moved back to town, Bethy and I, after living through a, a failed church launch. It was in Rockwall, Texas. God called us to be there. I'm confident of that. But it failed because of one man. The man that was in charge, the pastor of the church. When we got there, I, I, I can't point out all the reasons. I give you, give you my ideas, but I don't want to speculate. He stopped listening to God. He tried to take control and, and things spiraled out of control very quickly. We found out at the end that he had been stealing money from the church. Um, overall, it was just a really bad experience. Okay? And so God moves Bethany and I back home. We're completely broke. Had to move in with my in-laws. Yay. My in-laws are great. No one wants to live with their in-laws. I don't care how, how good they are. So we had just moved back to town. And Glenn and Talitha had been a part of our lives for a long time. And Glenn asked to have lunch with us, and so he and Talitha and Bethany and I all went to lunch. And this was right after the implosion that was Donahue Family Church. Glenn was back. They had asked him to come back as the pastor. Church was completely broke, and they asked Bethany and I to pray about being their youth pastors. And so we did, and, and God told us to, and so here we are, okay? But they too had experienced the result of one person taking control in his own wisdom and his own power and trying to lead the church where he thought it ought to go. We have very similar stories. Needless to say, there was plenty of hurt in the hearts of all of those around that table that day. And all of us had this incredible desire to move forward, but in a way that was meaningful, right? I had had enough of man's wisdom. And, and I can probably speak on behalf of those that went through the Donahue stuff that they had had enough of man's wisdom, Right? Fast forward about a year and God had spoken for our elders to start a new church in a new location. And God told us to call this new church the gathering place. And the, the kind of idea behind that is in scripture it says that notorious sinners and, and tax collectors gathered around Jesus. And that's the kind of place we want to be. And that's what we are, in case you didn't know. We left what this area would call, I guess, a mega church, a really, really nice facility, and we moved into this really funky old church with wood wall paneling, and you know those churches where you, every room has a weird smell, not weird in a good way, like weird, like what did I hide in here? That's the kind of place we moved into, and it's in that place that that song, Be My Joy, was written, right? We had come out of this place of hurt, a place of strife. At that point, um, I was working at Petron. And I would take off half a day every Wednesday and go to the church to, to prep for the youth lessons for that night. Um, Lori was on staff of the church as a part-time secretary, uh, and she was typically there on Wednesday afternoons. And Kevin uh, Williams, who wrote that song with Lori, was typically up there on Wednesdays. I don't remember why he was there. Um, 
I don't think we had band. For, I don't know. He worked for the he worked for the tax collector's office. They don't work. That's all I'm saying. That was a joke for Kyle, but he's not here today. That's for you, Carrie. He knows. The three of us would sit in Lori's office. There was, there was her desk and a couch, and I can remember this like it was yesterday. Um, Kevin and I would be sitting at the couch. Lori would be sitting at her desk. We're all supposed to be working, but we're not. We're talking. But we're talking about all the things that God's been doing in our lives that week. And, and I can remember so many times us going, this must be a honeymoon period. If you haven't been married before, the honeymoon period is the first, I don't know, it's different for people, the first year or so in which you still got those bubbly feelings about each other. It doesn't matter what the other one does. You're just so happy that you're married. That fades. Better things are to come. Better than that. But we would always talk about how we must be living in that honeymoon period. And surely things couldn't be this good for very long. Because our past experiences told us that this was not normal and that things couldn't be that good. And while I'm quite sure that nothing was perfect, it certainly felt that way. It felt perfect. And the reason it felt that way is because there was none of the tension between leadership and between members that I had always experienced in church, literally every church I ever served in, whether I was a member there or on staff. There was always tension of some kind. I can't speak for, for Lori and Kevin and where they are right now, but I can speak for myself. And I can tell you that it still feels like a honeymoon. There's no tension. And that is significant. Because none of my previous experiences were like that. And I, I want to tell you why it is that way. The unity, the peace, the joy that we experience is the result of a body of members and a leadership team that are committed to one focus. And that is to know God and to do what He's called us to do. When all of us are moving in the same direction, when we're all following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we're all moving in the same direction and there's no place for tension. There's no place for arguments. There's no place for misunderstandings. Because all of us have the same purpose. That doesn't mean that things are perfect or that, that there isn't frustration. At times there are because we're all weak humans, right? But what it means is at the end of the day, we're able to work through those things. Because what's important for me is not that I'm right. I'm married. I got over that a long time ago. The purpose is for us to, to follow the Lord together. So when we talk about eldership, I take that incredibly seriously because I've lived under the leadership of one man before. And I know the, the, the traps that are there for him and for the people, Okay. I don't, want to say, I don't want you to hear me say today that these two men were the problem. We were all the problem. But God designed the church to work in a very specific way. And so as we are thinking about what it means to have elders, I want you to hear my testimony of it changed my life. It changed how I experienced God and how I experienced the body. Because now, instead of there being anger and frustration and tension, there's peace and there's joy and there's hope. I've learned firsthand the benefits of obeying God, and I will always keep that at the forefront of who we are as a church. And I'm asking you to do the same. That's the only way this works. Because I'm confident that if I were to take control, all of you would have these kind of war stories that I have, but I would be the bad guy in those stories. I don't want that for you, and I don't want that for me. So, I'm asking you today to trust me, learn from my experiences, and let's pursue God as we seek about what it means to be um, 
a man that's called to be an elder. I want to pick up today where we left off, or we're going to pick up in verse 3. But I want us to read that whole seven verses because, again, I want us to get the context of what Paul is saying. I don't like to take an isolated verse and read just that and expound on it because without the whole thing, it loses some of its meaning. So we're going to read verses 1 through 7 and then we'll break down We'll starting in verse 3. Paul saying to Timothy, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur some condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he does not fall into the disgrace, disgrace of the devil's trap. All right, y'all with me? All right, let's dive in. We've got a lot to talk about today, all right? In, these, in verse 3, Paul gives us these four things that, that he says an elder shouldn't fall prey to, okay? Doing so is a disqualifier for the ministry of leading the church. I call these the three knots, okay? That's, I don't know, that's what I've been calling them in my head all week, okay? Or excuse me, four knots. Let's dive right in and talk about a topic that can cause some division. How about it? Y'all ready? All right, point number one, an elder should not be an excessive drinker. Okay, we're going to talk about alcohol for a minute. Everybody relax. It's going to be okay. Um, as y'all know, I grew up in the Methodist church, and we had no squabble at all with this thing. It was fine. I know you probably heard the joke. You know how to tell the difference between a Methodist and a Baptist? Methodist will say hello in the wine section at the grocery store. Okay? <laughs> Carrie told me one last week, you know how to keep a Baptist from drinking your beer? Invite two. That one's a better one. Okay. Look, this, this particular topic has been one of a lot of debate, and it's important that we're all on the same page in order to understand what God is trying to say to the church, right? That's our goal. We want to look at this passage and say, God, what are you trying to tell us about the church? Right? All right. I've heard a lot of theories from a lot of different denominations throughout my life um, on the scriptural references to wine, whether or not it's alcoholic. And I want to just go ahead and settle that today. All right. Now, I want you to know this is not my opinion. This is from scripture. Okay, everybody following me? Without a doubt, when the Bible refers to wine, it contained alcohol, okay? If it didn't, there'd be no reason for Paul not to say, don't drink a lot of grape juice, okay? Not being able to poop is a lot different from being drunk. <laughs> Just saying. I mean, they both could, okay, well, both could be bad, but I'm sorry. I went to, I'm sorry. I was a youth pastor for 20 years. It just I didn't write that down. That came out of me. This is what happens when your pastor's tired. All right. Listen, I, I understand um, fully that there are many that make a decision to abstain from alcohol. And I have nothing but respect for those people. I, I've had a lot of friends and family who have chosen to abstain from alcohol because they know that alcoholism is a huge problem in their family. And so they've said, I'm just going to not touch it. And that is a wonderful, wonderful, wise decision. So I'm not, I don't want you to hear me say that that's not good, okay? But we know that Scripture is talking about wine being alcoholic because of fermentation, okay? If you don't know about fermentation, it is a wonderful thing, not just in the world of wine. I'm going to give you some reasons in a minute. But fermentation is a naturally occurring process in which sugar and carbohydrates are transformed into something that won't spoil because in their, in their original form, they will, okay? 
We eat a lot of things that are the result of the process of turning sugars and carbohydrates into alcohol or preservatives that are organic acids and carbon dioxide, okay? Think bread. That's fermentation. Pickles. Vanilla. Everybody likes vanilla in there, you know, in your ice cream. Hot sauce. Chocolate. Anybody a fan of sauerkraut? I am. Okay, there's a couple of weirdos in here. Good. Sourdough bread. I know everyone likes sourdough bread. If you don't like sourdough bread, something's wrong with you. All right? Fermentation is how food was preserved. And when you, especially when you live in an arid environment, arid is like desert. It's dry, it's hot, food spoils very quickly. And so to ferment food was a way of preserving it, a way from making it last. And wine in particular was the go-to drink in those environments because if you didn't have water, you would always have wine. Now often, culturally, they would mix water with the wine. But obviously there were some that weren't. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to say what he's saying. He's saying that an elder should not be an excessive drinker. He's saying saying exactly what it sounds like. The ESV says, don't be a drunkard. That's pretty clear to me. We're going to... I'm going to pause. I want, I want to put a little disclaimer in there. We're going to talk about some Greek words in a minute, uh, for a minute. And I want you to know I get no joy out of this whatsoever. This is not a feather in my hat of, look how great I, I hate it, but it's necessary, okay? Because I want you to see what Paul's seeing. There's a word here, paranois, that's translated literally as an excessive drinker. But it can also be translated as addicted to wine. The, the root word there um, of paranois is anois, Okay. And, and that's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 17, where he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskin burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and they're both preserved. Fermentation causes little bubbles. If you've ever watched bread rise, that's the bubbles. Alcohol does the same thing. When, when grape juice is fermenting, the sugars are being broken down, carbon dioxide is released. An old wineskin, if you've ever had like an old piece of leather, they're hard and they're brittle. And if you put that wine in there and it can't expand, the wine skin's going to burst. You lose all your, all your grape juice, right? Is everybody following with me? We know that Scripture's talking about alcohol here because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have used that example. Paul is telling the church, don't choose someone who is addicted to wine. What Paul knows and he wants us to understand is that overindulging in anything, but in particular addictive substances, will kill a person's ability to minister. So I'm fortunate enough that I haven't had that struggle in my life, but I have a lot of friends and family who have, and they all kind of say the same thing, is that when you become addicted to substances, your whole life revolves around that. It's about getting that next high, that next drink. All their time and energy is spent on that. And that's why we see Paul warning against this. Because a person who is in charge of the church, their whole focus should not be on that next drink. Their whole focus should be on pursuing the Lord. In order for the elder to lead the church as he should, God should be the singular point of focus in his life. That should be his go-to, right? Point number two I want to make today, an elder should not be violent or quarrelsome. In the same way that we shouldn't be controlled by substances, we also should not be controlled by our emotions, Let's look at verse 3 again. It says, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not greedy. Now, I use the word violent. It's, that's what it uses in the ESV. But we get the same sense from the word bully, right? We all, we've experienced one of those before. These first three prohibitions are signs of a loss of control. We also see the, the word gentle among this list. And, and we should let that be the nature of what we see 
and an elder. He should not be one that is quick to respond in harshness, but takes his time, thinks about his answer, gains control of his emotions if there's a need for that, and then communicate in love and in a helpful tone. If an elder can't control his desires or his emotions, he's definitely not in any condition to lead the church. An elder should be one that's like Christ in bringing about peace as he enters a situation. Does that mean that there's never going to be conflict? No, there's going to be conflict because we all have sin in us. But how we approach that conflict is significant. Rather than escalating the tension, they usher in peace and understanding. And this stands in contrast with someone that's always looking for a fight or an argument. We made fun of my brother for years. We used to say it's like talking to a fence post because he would always, you'd be having a discussion about something. It wasn't even important. And he had to be right. And he would always end with the same thing. He'd say, well, I'm just saying. Well, you're just wrong. But I'm just saying. Jacob's not that way. Well, he's kind of that way. But mostly not. But you guys get the sense of what I'm saying. If this person is constantly looking for a fight, constantly looking to argue, they're not, their heart is not in the right place. God is the author of peace, and those that are pursuing Him should exhibit that same likeness and character, right? We've talked about that already. That as we are pursuing the Lord, we're made more and more in His likeness. Point number three, an elder should not be a lover of money. In thinking about this this week, I wanted to really dig into this idea, because this is something that is significant in our culture right now, right? Pursuit of wealth, pursuit of possessions. It's something that I've struggled with and I've shared that with you guys. I like nice stuff. A lover of money is, is actually just one word here in Greek. It's the combination of the word philio, which we recognize as love, right? Everybody remembers that. And then the root word is agrios, which is translated as silver. And when I read that this week, immediately my mind went to Judas, Right? I think that was the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Maybe you made the same connection. But Judas had a love for money. What a great example of the power over a person that money can have. That this man walked with the Lord for three years, saw everything that he did, but at the first opportunity to get a little coin, he betrayed Jesus. I'll be honest, it also made me think of Gollum. All right? My precious. If we allow it, money can have that same power that the one ring had over Gollum. It, it, it takes all of our focus and our whole life becomes um, focused on that thing. It controls our every waking moment. It drives our actions and it causes us to lose focus on our pursuit with God. And look, Jesus knew of the dangers associated with money. Is money useful? Absolutely. Do we need it? Yes, definitely. But it can't be our sole focus. When Jesus was teaching about this in Matthew 6, chapter 19, he said this. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where neither thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters since he will either hate one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Look, Jesus knew. And he's saying, look, don't spend your whole life worried about things here on earth because church, as believers, this is not our kingdom, right? This is, this is just where we live in the moment. And so we should invest in the things that are lasting, not things that we're going to have to leave here on earth. 
One of the commentaries I read this week said that if any of these would have been, um, would have been a, found in an elder, these four knots, it would have been an immediate cause for action. These are significant. These are not simple sins that come and go, but rather they are deep-rooted, slow-growing things, and they're able to quickly destroy the peace and the unity of a church when they rear their heads. These are not like, oops, I made a mistake. These are, I have made a decision to move my life in this direction, right? None of these things are surprising to us. We've all seen or experienced results of churches failing to hold their leaders to these standards that Paul's laying out for us. In the story I shared this morning, at least three of these things were in play in my story and in the story of Donahue. It was men who let their focus be in the wrong place. And as I've mentioned before, this is why I'm so thankful that our church is not led by one person. Not by me, not by Glenn, not by Zach Mullis. That our church is led by a body of men who are all holding one another accountable, but we're all pursuing God together. They're seeking His will and not their own wisdom. I also want you to know that, that you not only have the freedom, but I expect from each of you, that if you see an elder slipping up in a place like this, to say something. Because we're just like you. Sin does creep in on us. And, and if I see you slip up and I feel the Lord tell me to tell you something, I'm going to say it. Because I love you. And I expect the same for us in return. So you have my permission to call us out if you feel led to do so. The health and the well-being of the church is far more important than my pride or the pride of any of the other elders. I would much rather you say something than to be quiet and have that in the back of your mind all the time. Do we, can we agree on that? Yeah, it's significant. It's significant. As we think about these four things that Paul warns the church to be on the lookout for, it should be obvious that these are not qualities that the world looks for in leaders, right? That's, if you think about the business world, which is unfortunately how a, lot of, how a lot of churches are run, in a business setting, it's common to want somebody that's ruthless, that wants to gain a lot of money, right? They're passionate about gaining wealth. And that may be good for a company, but it's not good for the church. That's not what we're headed for. I read this in one of my um, commentaries this week. It says, God's word and not the values of society in which we live must be allowed to shape the correct thinking and behavior in this area. He's talking about specifically in elders out of this passage from 1 Timothy and also Titus is that when we look at the qualifications for an elder, when we're thinking about who the leaders in our church should be, we're not looking for the world's definition of what a good leader is. That we're looking at Scripture's definition of what a good leader should be. Okay? If you haven't noticed yet, we don't operate like a, like a lot of other churches. And I'm not saying that they're bad, okay? But our goal as a body is to hear and obey God. And the only way that we can do that is if our leaders and our members are all pursuing the Lord together. While the elders certainly play a large part in that, I want to remind you what we talked about two weeks ago, that this list of qualifications is not just for elders and it's not just for deacons. This list of qualifications is something that all of us as the body should be pursuing together. That all of us should want to be moving towards the goal of being more and more Christ-like. Let's pick up with verse 4 and verse 5. It says he must manage his household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his household, how will he take care of God's church? So, next point. I don't remember how many I'm at now. An elder should manage his household well. All right, quick question. 
How many of you know or grew up as a PK, preacher's kid? All right, we've got a few in the room. All right, good, good, okay. These two verses make me laugh when I think about most of the PKs I know because they are not good. I'm not going to say any names, but one I know very well had a motto growing up who said, my parents can't kill me, therefore I will do what I want. <laughs> Y'all can guess on who that is, right? But in all seriousness, what's Paul talking about, right? Does this mean that if my kids are misbehaved that I'm disqualified from being an elder? That's a thought that has come into my mind before. Let's dig in. Let's see what Paul's saying. I want to remind you that Paul is speaking primarily to a Greco-Roman culture, okay? And during this point in time, the family, the life of the family is extremely structured. They had a husband, had a wife, there were children there, but there was also often servants or slaves that were a part of that household. And the authority structure of those homes was incredibly important. And there were certain expectations from every level of that structure. And it was the, the husband's job to make sure that everyone stayed in line and did what they were supposed to do. Paul's intent here is to make sure that the leaders that were chosen upheld their obligations and the structure of their families. Now you may think um, a couple of things. One that I thought was, well, um, first of all, we don't have slaves. Okay, that's good. Okay, but what is... What does that have to do with church leadership? To expect less of a leader would have risked associating the church with charges of social disruption or political subversion. Remember, Rome was a conquering empire. They went into a place, they established their own leadership, and if you stepped out of line of what they said was okay, that was a big deal. And so what Paul is telling the church is that if there is a man in your church who is letting his family ignore these social norms, the problem is is that the Roman government is going to see that. They're going to come down on that family, and then by association, they're going to come down on the church as well. The way we lead our lives, men, is important. So what does this mean for us, right? We don't live in a Greco-Roman culture, do we? We do not. Our lives are different. It's important for us to consider Paul's intent because if taken out of context, it can cause much attention to go to things that don't matter. Some of those friends that I grew up with, some of those PKs, can tell you stories where they were subjected to a standard that was very different from the rest of the church, right? Some PKs in here held to a standard much different than everyone else in the church. And rather than feeling uh, or growing up in an environment of love and compassion, they grew up in an environment of, of guilt and shame. And that's not how the church should feel, right? Paul is not saying... Make your, your guys, guys, Paul's not saying make your, your wives and your children submit to you out of fear. When I read this, here's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling Paul saying, look, are you loving your family well? Right? This is the heart of this qualification. If an elder loves his family well, whether he's married, has kids, or is single, is he loving his family in a way that reflects the love of Christ? Are they loving his family like, the, like Christ loves the church? And look, by the way, side note, this does not mean that you have to be married to be an elder. Okay, that is not a qualification of eldership. But when I think about how our culture views the family dynamic, it's really depressing, right? I think about how our culture defines what it means to be a family. But when I think about 
men and women of faith that I know and how they care for their family, I am encouraged to love my family better. Right? This is an incredible way that we as a body of believers, as leaders, can show the world what real love looks like. Families are broken these days. And we have an opportunity to love in a way that the world is not used to seeing. It's a way that we can communicate the love of Christ by loving well. If you've been blessed with kids or, or involved with, in the life group of other people's kids, love them as Christ loves. As I was writing this, I'm thinking about, um, I don't remember how many months ago it was. It was right after I think we started meeting back here. You guys showed up, the Felters showed up, and David and Leah were here, and Nina just went, oh my gosh, for David, okay? And what is that evidence of? It's evidence of them loving kids well. I think about Wednesday nights when Michelle comes through the door or Kyle comes through the door or whoever. Those kids immediately, boom, they want, it, they want their attention. It's because they're being loved well. Our church has an incredible testimony in our communities of what it looks like to love well. That when people think of us, they don't think of condemnation. They think about men and women that are walking their faith out in front of the children of the church. And they're showing them what it means to care for one another. It's a blessing to be a part of that church. I just want you to know that. As a father of, of five kids, seeing you love my kids is significant for me. There have been men and women over the years of TGP Church that have invested heavily in my children. And I can't say thank you enough. And I see you all investing in the children of, of, of other families. And I cannot say thank you enough. I think of our families in here that have been involved in, in foster care in all different capacities, whether it's um, being a social worker or being an adoptive parent or, or helping someone who is an adoptive parent. Those things are significant. All right, I'm going to stop. I could talk about that all day. Next thing, an elder must not be a recent convert. This is out of verse six. He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. All right, this is an interesting one. Because it's the early church, right? So the first question I ask is, isn't everyone a new convert? Right? So I dug in a little bit, all right? Thankfully, I have some really great software. Shameless plug for Logos. If you hadn't downloaded it, do that, okay? So the first few years, yes, everyone was a new convert. Everyone was, okay? But by the time Timothy is in Crete, the church had been established for a while. And by a while, I mean like more than 20 years the church had been established. So now there's a very distinct difference between a new and an old convert. And, and honestly, Paul is writing this from prison, so it could have been as much as 30 years into the life of the church. Paul's warning about this, and it's, listen, it's not about a person's age. He's not saying if someone is young, they can't be an elder. What he's referring to is their understanding of God and of the enemy. One of the examples that's sometimes used to help us understand this is the story of Peter. This is out of Matthew 26, verse 30 through 35. It's one that we're familiar with, but let's look at it together. It said, after singing a hymn, they went out uh, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will fall away uh, because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him. <laughs> I just see Jesus, and I hear Talitha's voice going, bless your heart. I don't know why. Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, 
I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Look, Jesus had been in Peter's life for three years. And Peter knew Jesus well. But Jesus knew Peter better, right? Peter displays an arrogance that comes from a lack of understanding. He was speaking beyond what he had experienced. Had he walked with Jesus for three years? Absolutely. Had he experienced the kind of pain and sorrow that he was about to experience? Not even close. And so he's speaking beyond something that he knows. When we're looking at these requirements of leaders that have walked with God for a significant amount of time, that helps to safeguard against speaking beyond your experience. That's the reason that Paul is saying, don't pick a new convert, because there's a lot they don't know. And often they don't know what they don't know. As you get older, you figure out there's a lot more I don't know. And that's a good thing because it keeps you on the lookout. We talked about that last week. Also, if someone is a new believer and they're quickly appointed to this level of leadership, it can go to their head and pride can rise up inside of them and they can think, wow, I must be a really great guy because the church just put me in charge. And we got to safeguard against that because the last thing we need, as we've already discussed, is someone leading from their own wisdom instead of God's. All right, last one. An elder should be well thought of by outsiders. And this is verse 7. It says, furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into the disgrace of the devil's trap. Y'all know what the number one criticism of the church is, at least from my experience? A bunch of hypocrites, right? Leah testified to that this morning. We all are, right? That's truth. We all are. Because we, as Paul so eloquently said, the things I want to do, I don't. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing, right? It's because of sin in us. For so long, the church is focused on behavior modification, trying to get people to act and look the right way. Put your mask on before church, pretend that everything's okay, and everything will be okay, right? I heard, heard it say this way, fake it till you, till you make it, right? You pretend like everything's perfect in hopes that one day that it will be. What that's done for the church is it has allowed people to see that we're just full of it, right? Not perfect. And, and not only are we not perfect, but now we're putting these, these standards that we can't even meet on the people around us and expecting them to live up to them. And, and culture, the people around us have had enough. And they've said, no, uh-uh, I'm out. I don't need any of that. Right? The world sees our failed attempts at being righteousness and they call us out on it as they should. Right? But we live under grace and hopefully we all understand that Our righteousness is from Christ. It's not because of anything that we do. If we understand that and we communicate that to the people in our lives, what they'll come to know is that we are aware of our sin. And we're not trying to be something that we're not. We're relying on Jesus to change who we are. And we we are no longer the ones setting the example of what's acceptable. We're dependent on God's grace and His mercy. And it's Christ's righteousness that He puts on us. And instead of us communicating that we're better than everyone, we're speaking truth that we're sinners in need of a Savior just like they are. And with that authenticity comes a new view. One of our greatest testimonies of our church uh, that we hear over and over and over again is that there's a lack of judgment that people feel from us. If people felt like they were being judged, Leah would not have shared what she shared this morning. If I felt like I was constantly going to be judged, I wouldn't share with you the truth of what's going on in my life 
Because I wouldn't want you to know that, right? But what I know and what you know is that with authenticity comes a lot of love and a lot of grace. Being able to say to people, look, I've got, I've got problems in my life. Just like you got problems in your life. And so let's figure that stuff out together. This is the sentiment that Paul is talking about. When people outside our body, both believers and unbelievers, think of our members and our leaders, we want them to feel loved, not condemned. We don't want them to feel like they are less than when we, when we spend time with them. If my actions and words align, then I will be well thought of. However, if I paint a false picture by building myself up to, to be as if I'm perfect, everyone's going to see right through that. And then I'm a liar. I'm a hypocrite. Neither, neither I or Paul are saying that outsiders should be the ones making the decisions about, we're quali- about who's qualified. I want to make sure that we're clear on that. But what Paul is saying is that it's a really, really good litmus test for us is to think about how the people outside of the walls of our church think about who we are, right? That's significant. Because our goal, right, is to lead others to know God. And if their view of us is that we are some self-righteous people that are better than everybody else, how much luck are we going to have leading them to Christ? Zero. None. But when we're real with people, when we're authentic with them, when we spend time with them, when we share what we're struggling with, and we talk about God's grace for us, it changes us and it changes them. It helps us to be drawn to the Holy Spirit. Listen, I hope you're encouraged by these qualifications and not intimidated by them. I know today was long, okay? But I want you to hear me say this. I've said it a lot last week. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we could ever begin to meet this list of qualifications. I don't care if you're um, being called to be an elder or a deacon or just a member of the body. All of us are in the same boat. We're completely reliant on the Holy Spirit, okay? But this is our goal as elders. We want to know God and we want to know His lead, right? We want to follow what He's telling us to do. So as you're praying this week, this is what I want you to be asking God for, is that He would change all of our hearts, when we're asking God who he's calling to be in leadership of our church as an elder, we want to be asking God, who is it in our body that has a heart for you, that has a heart for people? I mentioned last week that Jacob Crump and Carrie Westbrook have been called to this ministry. And I want to say this, if you feel like God's calling you to be an elder, come talk to me about that, okay? It's not like we had two positions open and now they're filled, okay? We can have up to like eight, I think. Okay, we got plenty of room. But if God's calling you that, come see me. Let's talk about it. I also want to mention, um, I had somebody this week call me and say, look, I really feel called to the ministry of being a deacon. Fantastic. So we're going to talk about that next week. Okay, we're going to talk about the difference between an elder and a deacon because they are different. And our culture often puts deacons in the place of elders. And so we want to know why we don't do that and what role they're supposed to play, okay? I'll just give you a little tidbit. An elder's role is, in, is about spiritual leadership. That's what we've been talking about. A deacon's role is to be a servant leader, is to serve. We'll talk about that more next week, okay? Both of those are necessary, and they have almost exactly the same requirements in terms of qualifications that we've gone through for the last two weeks, okay? But we'll talk more next week. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful for this church that you have blessed us with. God, that not that we are, are just super awesome people. Ooh, that's loud. I'm sorry. Sorry, God. 
God, I'm so thankful for the, for the grace and the mercy that you have allowed us to experience together. God, I know that it is my heart, I know it's the heart of our people to really, really want to know you and to help others to know you in the way that we know you. God, as we, are, as, we as a body are praying about who it is that you're calling to fill these, these leadership roles in our church, God, I ask that you would speak to us very clearly about who those men would be. That there would be no question or no doubt in anyone's mind that they are, they are striving towards you with everything that they have. God, help us to lean on your wisdom and not our own. Jesus, we love you and we're so thankful that you were um, so focused in on us and so personal with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.